Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is me, Kelsey Adams. I'm a PhD candidate in QUT's School of Justice, as well as a research assistant, tutor, and occasional guest lecturer. Jodie and I talked for almost two hours on a wide range of topics, so this episode is part one of a two-part conversation. These two episodes don't really rely on each other, so it's fine to listen to this as a standalone. Just be aware it stops a little abruptly because we're mid-conversation. In this episode, we discuss my PhD project on sexual violence, coping with emotionally difficult research, and how to walk the line of being kind of both a student and a colleague as a PhD candidate. Part two will be coming soon. So, who the heck are you? My name is Kelsey Adams. I'm a PhD student in the School of Justice at QUT. I've just started my third year, like a couple of days ago. I I started my third year of my PhD, which in theory is the last year, but we'll see if we need that extra six-month extension. My work is about understanding sexual violence survivors' experiences after sexual violence. So what does that aftermath look like? How do they label their experiences and how do they integrate that trauma into their life? So that's kind of what my PhD is about. That sounds really intense and I feel like we're going to come back to that. But let's talk about, as a PhD student, you kind of sit in this awkward space mm-hmm. in academia where you're a student but also a colleague because PhD students often do casual academic work mm-hmm. and you are now, by your third year, probably more of an expert in your particular field <laughs> than your supervisor, which is a difficult space to occupy. Mm. And that's what they tell me. Yeah, so it's, it is really weird because you kind of come, came out of undergrad being like a student and as a student, it was very like, I've listened to what the lecturer says and listen to what your academics say and all that stuff. And you have to do the assignments just right and all this thing. And I had, a, I had a couple of years break where I was in the world and outside of academia for a little while. So when I came back to do a PhD, I was kind of expecting it to be the same thing, right? I was expecting there to be sort of lists and rules and things that I needed to make sure I got done right. And that I had, you know, adults, big people, grown-ups to listen to while I went through that process. And it took a while to realize that everyone around me, including my supervisors, and I have two excellent supervisors who have provided me with excellent guidance, but they treated me like a colleague and they treated me like a person who, a person who knew stuff and a person who was empowered to know things and to, to sit at the big kids table, which was kind of a weird experience. And you're right, at this stage, I've read so much about rape acknowledgement I'm a bit better versed about it than my supervisors are, and I don't think either of them would have a problem with that. Being Doing a PhD means you go really, really deep into one mm. topic, and you do get some expertise. There was a point about a year ago that I realized that I could probably speak better about this topic than most of my peers, most of my fellow PhD students, and possibly some other academics that I knew, which was kind of wild. Being treated as a professional 
and as a colleague while you're still a student is a bit of a difficult line to walk. And it's been tricky learning how to be in that space. Yeah. What have you learned about academics in that transition? (laughs) Mostly just that they're not that scary. Damn it. (laughs) My cover is blown. (laughs) It's all ruined. No, because I, like, my lecture is an undergrad where people that I really respected and really revered. I've always been a bit of a a goody-two-shoes, teacher's pet kind kind of a kid. So... I suddenly had these teachers who not just were in charge of my assessments and stuff, like leading people in the world on shit that I cared about and things that I was really interested in and I really revered them and I thought that that was amazing and if I passed them in the halls, I would fangirl a little bit quietly inside of myself. But the more I... Getting into like the later years of undergrad then doing honours and then meeting people through the PhD program, the more I spoke to lecturers and academics and associate professors and professors the more it was just like having a conversation and I mean a part of that was that I got older like it became a little bit easier as the people the academics in my life looked less like my parents and more like my peers to to put it kind of bluntly but also yeah people were willing to engage with me as a person not as a student or some idiot that they needed to teach which was really cool yeah. So talk to me about learning to be a researcher in a really challenging emotional area. Oh, I feel like you could tell me and everybody more about this kind of a topic than I could. I did an undergrad in psych and a lot of that was really theoretical. So then moving into justice and moving into this area where I was going to be dealing with really thorny, difficult, traumatic topics, I felt... This is going to sound weird, but I felt overwhelmingly lucky because both of my supervisors, as I was developing my project, and I was like, I'm going to be talking to rape survivors. I'm going to be talking to people about their experiences of trauma. That's going to be difficult for them. Over and over, my supervisors were like, yeah, but that's also going to be difficult for you. That's going to be really hard in terms of vicarious trauma for you to conduct this project. So I actually felt really lucky because the, the undertone of that was that this wasn't a thing that people used to care about. And it's been good. I've done four interviews so far, and prior to that, administered a survey to about 250 participants and interviewing people about their sexual violence experiences was really tough. It's awful being in a room and hearing someone talk about one of the most traumatic experiences of their life. But it's also a really privileged place, and I've really appreciated the way that these women shared their stories with me and in a strange way I found it very easy to hold space Mm. and to listen and to be there for them as a witness to what that story was like. It makes me feel like I have a lot of responsibility as a researcher to tell those stories faithfully and to use those interviews well and to create good scholarship that makes the situation better for people in that situation in the future. But it has been hard. There have been times after an interview, you know, I'd be doing my journaling, my mindfulness journaling, like a good vicarious trauma manager. And, you know, I I do my meditation most mornings and I exercise a couple of times a week and make sure that I keep up with my social connections, all that good stuff that they tell you to do as vicarious trauma management. 
But even then, like the other day I was yeah, writing down my post interview notes just kind of to brain dump about it and just started crying and cried for a good 10 minutes and had to later call up a friend and be like, hey, I have some things to download. Not in the specific content, but just like I need to connect with someone, mm-hmm. I need to share this experience. It's it's hard. And you know it's hard. Like I know that a bunch of your research is about clergy perpetrated sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, and instances of abuse in the Catholic Church and that's gotta be difficult in talking to survivors in those spaces. Like I hundred percent agree. It can be really rough, which I guess comes to the question and you can feel free to answer this however you want or not answer it. Why is it important to you to do this work? The thing about my specific topic, and I know every researcher will have a different reason why their work is important. The reason why I think my work is really important is that rape acknowledgement is whether a survivor labels their assault as rape or not. And in the reading that I did, what I tended to find was that people who labeled their assault as rape were more likely to go and get support, they were more likely to report to the police, they were more likely to... They, they were more likely to have had conversations with people. We find that that social thing helps people to understand what their experiences are. Particularly talking to other rape survivors means that you're more likely to call it rape yourself. And I think that understanding acknowledgement is so important because it means that we can potentially facilitate more of those conversations. We can do better with the criminal justice system to help survivors access justice and we can do better support. Because if you don't think that you were raped, if you don't call that experience rape, you're not going to go to a rape survivor support centre. You're not going to go to a rape survivor support group. Because why would you? You weren't raped. That wasn't your experience. And I think that that's a big failing. And I think unless we understand acknowledgement and unless we understand why people don't call it rape, we're not going to be able to help the people who don't. Mm. Agreed. So that is a really, I guess, thorny and challenging area to be in but it's not the only thorny and challenging area <laughs> i'm sure that you have encountered in your <laughs> student slash academic career mm-hmm. so i'm gonna frame that to go into this question around doing these podcasts mm-hmm. co-producing these podcasts mm-hmm. what are you hoping that people walk away with mm-hmm. from them just for the record, I forgot to mention, I edit these podcasts, so this is the... I just assumed people would know that from your voice at the beginning of them. Mm, I do say that at the end, I go, you know, I did the editing, but yeah, so so far I've just, I've edited the first two podcasts, in that interview that you did with Danielle Watson, and then the interview that you did with the wonderful Associate Professor Kelly Richards, and it's been really great hearing academics talk like people, I think is one of the big takeaways that I think is really important, because like I said, as a student... I really felt like academics were these very smart people and their high horses who, not because they thought that really well of themselves, but because I was so far down in the pecking order, so far down in the chain, I really felt like they were a million miles away. They were a star in my sky and couldn't see me, which is not true, as it turns out. And that feeling was perpetuated a bit. Like I started an undergrad in engineering, which is a different story, but I was one of a thousand first years being spoken to by our lecturer. So there is, depending on your discipline, obviously uh, different feelings of fading into the crowd and different feelings of your lecturers being very far away from you. But I think one of the things that 
I think is nice about this podcast and that I hope other people take away because I certainly got this feeling while I was listening to them and editing through them was understanding that academics are just other dudes. They're just other people who are just really deeply interested in stuff and wicked smart, but usually depending on the person, but like so far in the school of justice, I haven't met anyone who's been really up themselves. I haven't met anyone who's looked down on me for being stupid. And I know that a part of that comes from a bunch of the privilege that I hold. I am a PhD student. I already have a publication. I have a scholarship. I'm white. I'm articulate. I'm able-bodied. I don't read as queer or as queer as I am on the inside. There's, there's a bunch of privileges that go into that and people treating me well. But basically, yeah, that academics are just people who are going to talk to you and they're probably not going to look down on you because they've all been there. Yeah. Which brings me to a question that I had in my head earlier. I remember when you applied for your PhD and some discussions about this Kelsey human that was potentially applying for a PhD in justice but came from a psych background so maybe wanted to go in the psych direction rather than the justice direction. Mm-hmm. What swung it for you? It's going to be a really boring answer. I, both of my supervisors were in justice. So. Yeah, all <laughs> right. So my current supervisor, Michael, is a fantastic academic. I actually, we'd met briefly at a conference that a friend of mine dragged me to. So I kind of knew him as an academic, but the next several times that I met him, it was because he he was the dad of a kid that I taught at Circus. So yeah, I would see him there. And while I was like marking roles at a circus school, he came up and was like, hey, you know, I met you at that conference. Uh, And we talked about doing a PhD, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, basically over over several copies of several months, we chatted a bit about my topic and what I might potentially want to do, and eventually I, I put in a proposal. Um, and Michael was in justice. And I was like, I, I, I didn't know anyone at QUT. I came from UQ, so I, I wasn't really super familiar with the faculty. And I said, who else would you think would be good in this space? And Michael was like, I think this person, this person, this person made some recommendations. And I was like, they sound great. So because both of my supervisors ended up being just injustice, I ended up being injustice. Originally it was Bridget Harris, but she's leaving us, which is very I'm sad. Going on a merry own venture. Very happy for her. It sounds like an excellent role, but yeah, so at the moment my second supervisor is Laura Vitus. Laura is excellent. Love Laura. Mm, she's delightful. Yeah, she'll be really cluey in that space. She's been very insightful. We haven't had too many supervision meetings, but every time she's spoken, I've been like, that is really insightful and not a thing that I had thought of. She's mm. a real contribution to the mm. team and I really appreciate her insight. So I guess you come from a fairly, I would say, interdisciplinary background mm. then and we have, I guess, lots of students that are doing dual degree. Do you have thoughts mm. on interdisciplinary perspectives? I think for me, being interdisciplinary has allowed me to view each of my worlds, the world of psychology and the world of justice, through the lens of the other one. So at the moment, because I spend a lot of time in justice, doing my PhD, obviously, around lots of justice academics, I get a unique perspective because of my psych background. I have some different theoretical knowledge in this space that's a little bit unique where I am. I get a little bit of... I have some different research methodology approaches. Like, we learn a lot about quantitative Mm. research in psych which is not as common in justice but it also just allowed me to 
to view a lot of the theories and a lot of the approaches here just from a different perspective. And I think that's been really useful. Mm. I don't know about like broadly interdisciplinary. Like I don't know how other people experience that, especially because I don't super consider myself an interdisciplinary researcher. Like I haven't done a ton of work bringing psychology into my PhD, like psychological theories and stuff. But I know that the way that I approached doing my study must have been informed by that. Mm. And the way that I approached designing my research was definitely informed by my training as an undergrad. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not qualified in that way. But just the way that you learn to move your mind is different. In psychology, there's a lot of measurement. In justice, there's a lot of listening. And I think that being able to do and understand both of those approaches makes me a better researcher. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. (laughs) I totes pay that. Do you have a favourite theorist and why? I'm a really big fan of the way that Nicola Gavey talks and writes about the construction, the social construction of sex and the social construction of rape. She does some really, really great work around gendered sexual interactions and the way that gender norms and gender roles inform sexual relationships. I think she's stunning. And she's also had a coffee with her a couple of like, a year or two ago, oh which God. was wonderful. And she was she was fantastic to talk to. I was fresh out of psych, so I was in, in this very um, very positivist mind frame, this very scientific, I know what's true and I can tell truth from false reality is objective and I can measure it sort of approach. And she gently, <laughs> obviously, obviously identified that in the conversation and gently encouraged me because I was very early in my PhD gently encouraged me to do my research in a little bit more of a she would use the term constructivist but a to have a more gooey understanding of what reality is like Mm. and to be like reality is subjective not everything is measurable and if you're going to understand sexual violence you're going to need to understand how people relate to each other and you're going to need to understand or think, at least think really hard about the way that society and norms and gender inform that. I particularly like reading her work. She released um, a second edition of her book, Just Sex, The Cultural Scaffolding of Rape, in 2019, I believe. And the foreword is really fantastic because she stays really true to the nuance. She very openly admits in her writing that... She doesn't have all the answers, that this is a difficult, thorny topic, that this is a place where thinking hard is required and that objective facts are somewhere between difficult to arrive at and not appropriate to arrive at because objectivity is for things that you can objectively measure and people's experiences don't necessarily fall into that place, which was extremely challenging for me to hear as a researcher and as a scientifically minded person because I've been taught through my whole life and was it was affirmed in my undergrad that there are things that you can measure in the world and you can know what's true and what's false. And I want to say that that's still, I still mostly believe that there are just some edges that I'm thinking really hard about. Yeah, right. I think that's going to be really challenging journey in your work with survivors because survivors will often hold 
dual perspectives that seem to conflict because survival is a journey and it is a it's a journey that's not linear. Mm. It's not like you go from point A to point B and suddenly you've survived and you've recovered and it's a crazy ride of going around on yourself and going up and down and going backwards and forwards and sometimes holding the dual perspective on is I'm really angry and I just want punishment and I'm really sad and I want just want life to be better and those two things don't necessarily match up and you may hold both from moment to moment or hour to hour or year to year and you're right that reality is gooey I mean, relevant to, to my work, to, to labelling and acknowledgement, in most of the interviews I've done so far, the women that I spoke to said something along the lines of, I know that by an external definition someone would call this rape, but I don't want to, or I don't think that's what it is, or that's not the word that's right for me. And that dichotomy that I know what the legal external world definition of this thing is, and... I don't feel like that word is right for me or I don't want to use that word is a gooey and difficult place because you're right, those things would appear to be contradictory. But in the interviews that I've done and in the reading that I've done, because lots of interviews like this have been conducted by researchers far better than me, that seems to be true, that these two apparently disparate things can coexist. In psychology, we call it cognitive dissonance, the mm. idea that you can't hold two things that disagree in your mind, that human minds always want to resolve to believe in one thing, not two things mm. that, are, that, are, that are not in agreement with each other, which I think is actually a cultural thing and that, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But yeah, being able to sit in cognitive dissonance, especially when it's important to our research and it's important to the work that we do in justice, to be able to sit in a place where you're really angry, but also never want to think about it again. Mm. Or you're really sad, but you're also happy about, you know, after a traumatic experience, you might be really sad about what happened, but you might also be so happy that you're alive and so happy to be with your family. You know, there are these apparently contradictory things that really don't contradict at all. Mm. It's not just in the big things, though. I think we underestimate how in even the small things we have yeah. levels of cognitive dissonance and or levels of even just conflicting emotions or feelings like I look at that Mars bar (laughs) and I really want to eat the Mars bar and also I don't really like Mars bars (laughs) but I really want to eat it but I know that I'm not really going to enjoy it but and so I think that we should not be alarmed when in the big things these conflicting Mm. feelings come out but we should it's difficult to be comfortable with with that. It's difficult to hold that. Sorry for bringing the last bar into the room. That yeah, look, was, uh, that was obviously my, my fault. It's like, a, you know, I am allegedly a grown-up. <laughs> what did you take away from your undergrad degree that you would absolutely do again? My first realisation that lecturers were people was was a fantastic lecturer that I really, really liked. He did a a really great undergrad course in 
it's called the science of everyday thinking. It was about cognitive biases and about understanding where thinking often goes wrong. Basically, the thrust of the course is that you know brains are actually amazing, and it's it's stunning in how few circumstances brains get things wrong. Mm. Like the fact that we have cognitive bias, it's actually amazing that brains do so well ninety nine percent of the time. He had an opportunity for a research assistant role and was like, he just kind of said it in class, 60 or 70 of us in the room. He said, yeah, yeah, I've got this research assistant thing. One of my PhD students is working on blah, 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 this thing about fingerprints. If you are interested in that, come up to me at the end of class. And I came up and I was like, hi, I'm Kelsey. He's like, sorry? He's like, I'm interested in doing the research assistant thing. Is And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Fantastic. Amazing. Let's meet at this time of this date. And I met with him and I met with his PhD student and talked about her research. And to my surprise, and this is going to sound a bit silly, but her research was like really interesting. Mm. I think a lot of the time it's very easy to imagine academics as people who do really boring things. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of them do. A lot of, a lot of people who are in the academic world do things that you couldn't give less of a shit about. But every now and then, you're going to meet people who are, like, really, really interested in a thing that's really interesting. And she talked about her work, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I want to, I want to help with that. And, and Jason was just, you know, he was an associate professor, but he was just this guy who was interested in the way that people thought and wanted to understand how that plays out in the world. He was interested in a whole bunch of things about facial recognition and, and cognitive biases and passports and the efficacy of identification and all these really weird things. And I was like, this is actually really great. And we had this great conversation where they talked about their research with me and told me how I could help. I was helping identify fingerprints for this training program that they were developing. And it was great. I got paid more money per hour than I had ever been paid doing anything else, which was very cool as a young circus artist who was doing coaching on the side uh, while I was doing my undergrad. And it made me realize that, and I know this is a very biased perspective because now I'm on a research track in a research program as a PhD student, but like it made me realize that research is really interesting mm. and that a lot of academics just want, they're just really interested in their topics and just really want to talk about it. They can talk about their stuff till the cows come home. They're just so, they're fascinated and deeply curious and so ready to talk about it and for hours on end at a party that you really hoped that you were going to have a nice time at, you know? like <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. I can clear a room yeah. talking about my research. I mean, that's one of the tricky things about being a justice is that you ruin parties by bringing up sexual assault, <laughs> which is kind of rough, but like... I think for me that was, I didn't really identify it then, but looking back on it now, that was one of the first moments that I realised that academia was really interesting and I could really make something good in it. So I guess in tips for students, give things a go. University is a great time to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. I was very lucky. I was living at home, so I did have an income because of my part-time work, my casual work. But I did have the time to take a bit of time out. Like, I also did a volunteer research assistant gig a little bit later. I tried a bunch of clubs. None of them stuck. The only reason I went into psychology is because I did a psychology elective when I was doing an engineering undergrad. And I thought, screw engineering. I like psychology. I'm going to do the rest of my undergrad in that. 
And again, I had the privilege to be able to make those changes. But I think, yeah, my top tip for, for figuring out whether uni is right for you and for figuring out what you might want to do after, not for the rest of your life, obviously. I think there's a lot of emphasis on what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And I think it's all it's all a sham. You're going to do several different things. They're all going to be interesting. You can change at any time, really. But I think for figuring out what you might like to try after uni, it's nice to try stuff that's at uni. If there's a research assistant gig, if there's some weird projects that some artsy people are doing, if there's some opportunity to help a professor with some project that they're working on, just give it a whirl. Mm. The worst that they could say is no. Mm. I think the cool thing about knowledge that we completely undersell is this notion of I am deeply curious about this thing and I could not care about this thing. (laughs) But there are people who are deeply curious and care about this thing and this thing is of not intrinsically of less value overall. It just happens to be less valuable to me. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't count. Like I clearly am very interested in institutional child sexual abuse but don't really have an interest in policing which is in the heart of the justice which is in the heart of the justice thing people would say that's intrinsic to justice you have to know about policing my only interest in policing is in relation to policing child sexual abuse but even then it's kind of sidelined so find your people Mm -hmm. that are interested in the things that you're interested in Mm -hmm. and they will for the most part welcome you let me change your track on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not very likely, 10 being highly likely, how likely it is that you're actually going to run away and join the circus? Oh, I've done that. I've done that and come back. I'm, 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 I'm going to Adelaide for a week, like in two weeks, to perform at a circus show. Why did you come back? Because I don't have to choose. <laughs> yeah, I love it. This is more of the, like, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. I, for a little while, was really conflicted about whether I was going to do circus or academia, and I was like, I'm a circus performer, I'm pretty good at it, but not as good as a bunch of people that I know, and I'm pretty smart and I can write pretty well, and I felt like these things were intention. so I was like, right, I'm going to move to Sydney, I'm going to go to the trapeze school down there, I'm going to train really hard for three or six months, and I'm going to see if I can make a go at circus. Three to six months, by the way, is not long enough at all to to develop a prosperous performing career. <laughs> It's just that I wanted to see if I could develop my skills and hone them far enough to a place where I felt like I was going to be able to reliably get work. I went down there. I started training. (laughs) I very quickly, I'm a flying trapeze coach as well as all the other things that I do. I very quickly uh, fell into this place where they were like, hey, do you want to just teach you? You're here all the time. So I stopped. I mostly stopped, went back to casual training, went back into teaching, and I was like, yeah, I don't think this circus performing thing is really going to stick. And I came back to Brisbane and very soon after enrolled to do a PhD because I was like, right, I think this psych thing is going to work out. I think this academia thing is going to be the next thing that I pour all of my attention into. But I was still casually coaching on the side. And not two weeks after I made that choice, my circus school that I worked at, Flipside, were like, hey, there's this organization that we work with and they want some performers in one of their shows. Do you reckon you'd be available for that? I kind of hope you're always (laughs) both. I kind of love that. And I live a little vicariously through your delight in circus. And I appreciate that immensely. But, all right. Things you would never do again. 
Things I would never do again. As an undergraduate. As an undergrad. Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, there's plenty of things I'd recommend. I'd recommend having, you know, your mum on campus because she used to buy me lunch once a week. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I Only once that. a week. Slacker. I mean, it, it was it was slack for me. I really should have gone on campus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right. Oh, actually, I do have a question for you from your perspective. So you've talked about not going to lectures. Mm -hmm. You've talked about showing up on campus more. Mm -hmm. What do you think the benefit is of being in live lectures? If you are in a lecture series with a lecturer who is interested, engaged, and going to have good responses to your questions in the room, go. You'll be interested. You'll have a good time. It was a great lecture series by a, a, a dude named Bill Von Hippel. At, at awesome name. <laughs> Amazing dude. I bumped into him at a, at a rock climbing gym recently, and I was like, how awesome are you? He an example of a fantastic lecture. It was super, super, super engaging. He also had the benefit that he didn't have to release his lecture recordings. He recorded all of them, but he didn't have to release them unless he had a thing where if you provided a medical certificate, he could give it to you, but not to anyone else. So everyone went. And that made the room really full, really interesting. Everyone had a good time and talked. And I would recommend going to those lectures. There were lecturers that I had, and they do exist, who were boring, who spoke very, very slowly. I I fell asleep in many a lecture hall, Jody. It was an embarrassment. (laughs) And I stopped sitting at the front because of it, because it was a big problem. Because you're sitting and you're all nice and comfy and someone's droning on about who knows what. It's It's a very soporific experience. I would recommend listening to those lectures at home on double speed. Or 1.5 is usually what I would do. Because if you're not going to get anything out of being in the room, I wouldn't recommend going. Unless you're the kind of person who's not going to listen back, then you absolutely have to go because otherwise you're not going to take in the content. It's different at different universities, but from where I was at UQ, I very rarely went to lecture because all of the assessment and assignment information was in tutorials. So at the start, I usually I used to always go to lecture and never went to tutes, and I very, very quickly realized that I had it backwards. I crammed lectures toward the end of semester, but I always went to tutorials because your tutors are there to help you do assignments. At least they were when I went through with that uni. I don't know if that really answered your question. <laughs> I, I don't actually know if there is an answer to that question of why you should come to lectures from my perspective, coming to lectures as a lecturer is always way more fun when there's a bunch of people mm. in the room. Mm. And I think it's a much more collegial experience. I also think that there is something in the networking in real life yeah, and meeting people in real life that is beneficial for students. Yeah. I mean, I think that that becomes more true the more you get through uni. Like I think when you're in third year you're kind of surrounded by your peers who have stuck to it. Mm. Like when you're in first year and there's really big opening introductory courses where everyone's just giving it a whirl or when people are just doing it for electives for other subjects, whatever. But when you get into third year, fourth year, you get into smaller classes and you're surrounded by people who are actually interested in the thing that you're interested in. And I think that place for me was the place where I started to make actual uh, Mm. contacts and friends in the psychology space who I could then network with. I found it was a the smaller the session, the more chance there was that I was going to have a conversation. 
and the more chance that there was going to be a productive discussion if I asked a question in lecture. Whereas, I think in first year, when the lecturer's job, and I'm sure this is boring for them too, the lecturer's job is basically to just verbatim yell the textbook at you. Their job is just to, like, inject first year whatever into your brain. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of nuance and you can probably pick up from this. I'm going to say, any lecturer that is yelling the textbook at you is doing a poor job. Having taught first year for the first decade I was at QUT, if you were yelling the textbook, you are not working as at least an alternative to the textbook. You are not doing a great Mm -hmm. job Mm -hmm. at all of what you're doing. Yeah. I found that there were some lecturers who used to just read off slides. They had very, very wordy slides and would just read off them, and I was like, cool, I don't have to go to this lecture. (laughs) (laughs) But for a little while when I wasn't... For a little while when I wasn't as diligent, if I didn't go to the lecture room at the time that the lecture was on, I would never watch it. So if you're that kind of a person, you really have to go. Does content matter, though? Like, if it's not about the assessment, does it matter? I feel like I'm not going to like this answer. I feel like that depends entirely on the student. Because I know, and I'm sure you've met plenty of students who aren't going to uni because they're interested, they're going to uni because it was the next thing that they had to do and their parents required them to. And I think if you're in that situation, if you're in a fours open doors situation, I feel like this is an unpopular opinion among other academics. And when I'm in tutorial meetings with other tutors and with many of the coordinators, I try, I try to tamp this down because it makes them upset. But like, <laughs> but it's true. A lot, a lot of students aren't there because they are dying to hang off your every word and learn everything yeah. about this subject. They're in your subject because they want to get that sweet, sweet degree that's going to make mum and dad happy or that's going to get them to the next thing that they know that they need the degree for. And I think if you're there, fours open doors, talk to your tutors, get through your assignments, like gritty team can get through it, especially if you're in a position where you have to keep working full-time or working a lot to get through uni because lots of people are in that position. But I also think that the content is important and I think that if you give your lecturers and your tutors a chance to talk more about their subjects and to teach you, you'll learn a lot of really interesting things. Is there also something in just developing a habit of absorbing information? Yeah. I mean, to go back to what Kelly said, like partly absorbing information but partly being critical about information. Mm. When you hear stuff in lecture, not just hearing it and remembering it, you know, X event occurred on Y date putting that in context, putting that on the timeline, putting that in context with the other things that you know. What are your other subjects trying to teach you? How does all this stuff fit together? This podcast was hosted and produced by the wonderful Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from QUT. Thank you for listening.